Welcome to Cognation. This is your host, Rolf Nelson, coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island. And this is me, Joe Hardy, coming to you from El Cerrito, California. And today we're going to do a special shorter length podlet, a commute length podcast, about 30 minutes. And today's topic is the connectome, the set of connections between neurons in the brain. Um, the reason this comes up as a topic is because just recently there's been a publication of a full connectome for half of a fruit fly brain, which uh, has been a major advance in in uh, the science and um, something we're really excited about. Yeah, most of you probably have heard of uh, the Human Genome Project with the goal of mapping all of the genes in the human body. And the connectome is sort of named as an analogy to the genome uh, with the idea that the connectome is, is all about all the different connections between neurons, specifically in the brain, but it could be anywhere in the body. But uh, in this case, it's really about the brain. And the idea behind that is that if you can think about a model of the brain and understanding how it works, it would be very helpful to know what the units of that model are and how those units are connected. Yeah, so we can think of the connectome as essentially a wiring diagram for the brain. Um, so in the human brain, there are approximately 85 billion neurons and over a trillion connections between them. So this is a massive project and the idea that you could plot every single one of those neurons and understand the relation between all the neurons in the brain is a pretty ambitious project. Um, this has been undertaken before in smaller creatures. The first creature to ever have its entire connectome mapped was the uh, C. elegans. So a model animal, just a tiny little worm that's about a millimeter long, has had its entire connectome mapped. Now, this creature has uh, somewhere on the order of 300 neurons. So think of the difference in complexity between a creature like this and a brain like ours, and it's orders and orders of magnitude more complex. So this first connectome was mapped out in the 80s, and it's uh, now, of course, we've got much more sophisticated tools. We've got a lot of image recognition tools that that can help um, uh, put slices back together and um, understand how the 3D structure of the brain works. Uh, so the next step in this is the fruit fly. So Drosophila, which is a, a big animal model. The fruit fly has about 25,000 neurons. So this is you know, substantially more complex than a C. elegans worm, but not nearly to the level of uh, human complexity. Yeah, so I think, you know, this this model of the brain, you know, with about 25,000 neurons in this hemibrain, um, you know, basically, you know, is much closer to the human brain uh, than C. elegans is, but it's still very far away. So we're still talking about uh, orders of magnitude, less complexity, but it's very, very complex. And if you think about all of the connections that are happening, uh there there's there's a lot there's a lot you know millions of presynaptic sites and you know 
tens of millions of postsynaptic uh, connections. So, you know, lots yeah, that's of good. That's right. That's a good point. So, twenty-five. I said twenty-five thousand neurons in the fruit fly, and you're right. So it's twenty-five thousand in just the hemi brain. So just about half of the brain that they're mapping. And even with those twenty-five thousand neurons, uh, there's somewhere around twenty million connections between them. So in a, and and this is a very very tiny brain. I mean, you know, how big a fruit fly is. Um, I think the size of this is about two hundred fifty micrometers cubed. So it's 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 pretty sensitive and tiny little brain. Yeah, and if you think about the size of that brain, part of the challenge of you know getting these. Uh, connections mapped is to actually image this brain. So they had to, uh, part of the work that this group was doing, and this is a group uh, out of the Genalia Research Campus at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and uh, some some uh, researchers at Google Research, as well as a number of other sites. It's a big, big uh, multi-site project with a lot of collaborators. Uh, you know, it's an intersection between you know, biologists, neuroscientists, uh, a lot of computer science goes into this uh, and a variety of other disciplines as well. Right. So this is definitely a big coordinated project. And um, there is, I guess this is not unrelated to the human connectome project, which is uh, at this point, not quite at the level of mapping every single neuron in the brain, but it's an it, it's been an ambitious project. Uh, when did this start? Around 2010 or so? 2008? You remember? No, that sounds about right. I don't remember exactly, but that sounds about right. Somewhere around then, and it's been an ongoing project to try and map connections between different brain regions, mostly using fMRI. So those of you who are aware of limitations of um, fMRI machines, so we're not getting quite the kind of resolution. We're not going to be able to see individual neurons and something like that. So a broader scale, um, ambitious project with a lot of different labs involved, but doesn't get the sort of detail that something like this does. Yeah. And so if you're you know, thinking about how do you image every neuron in the brain of, uh, of, a, of a fly, well, you need to chop it up into little bits and then put every one of those little bits in a microscope. Right. So the first thing I should say is you can't do this while the fly is alive or you can't, I mean, you wouldn't be able to do this sort of technique with a, a living human. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in this case, it's just when they say like the, the fly brain, they're talking about like literally one fly in this right. case, because it has to be one individual because in order, because the slices obviously need to be continuous. You need to actually have all the connections in place for that one individual. So this is one female fruit fly. So this is, I guess, it's like the uh, it's like mapping the genome is is of course it's going to be different for different people. So you have to have one single model that you're sort of basing that standard genome on. So same with um, the connectome too, right? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so they and then they have to figure out you know a bunch of different things they had to figure out to how to do here to make it happen. One of the things they had to do was like how to figure out how to slice this brain like without messing up the connections, you know, so that you could sort of draw the line between one slice and the next slice. And so they did a bunch of work on figuring out like how to get the best, like, you know, hot knife to like slice through this tiny little brain. Right. So we've always, we've always uh, sliced brains to understand um, the physiology uh, of brains, but 
this is kind of a new, <laughs> this calls for a pretty um, precise instruments. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have to basically be able to like stitch those slices back together and figure out like how each, you know, and then, you know, within like a certain, like if you think about what the microscope is doing, it's creating like these volumes, you know, these like what are called voxels, which is like a little, like a pixel, but in volume. So it's like creates these voxels that have, you know, these little uh, 3D image uh, cubes in them. And you need to be able to connect those. So I guess thinking of scale too. So a voxel, usually a voxel in an fMRI experiment is about a millimeter cubed. So that would represent the smallest resolution that you could get in fMRI. And a a fruit fly brain in this case is much smaller than that. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, the the whole brain is just going to be you know, not much bigger than one, one voxel of the, uh, yeah. uh, uh, of the fMRI. So, yeah. So really, really small little things. Yeah. And you go look in those images and you try to basically figure out how within each of those, every individual cell needs to be segmented and then over from voxel to voxel to voxel, the connections between them, like how those, because these neurons, you know, obviously are, have long traces, uh, you know, the cells are extensive and connect over space. So it's almost you, like a, it's almost like a plumber having to figure, figure out what goes with what and kind of connect them up. So you can see how a neuron it gets followed, you know, the, the entire neuron, including all the little, all the synapses and the axon, how it, how it all gets uh, traced through all of these different slices. And I think in this case, there were 37 slices, which is impressive. The fact that you could cut this tiny little piece into 37 slices and and image them closely enough so that you can you can locate all of these neurons and the synapses and see how they connect to each other. Absolutely, yeah, and it required a lot of artificial intelligence work to basically automatically segment and then identify these cells. I mean, this is something that would have never been possible in the 80s or 90s because you would have had to do these things by by eye. So you'd have to look at them and try and match them up. And this is just computationally way too much information for a person to look at and and map up. So you need some sort of automatic process that does this. Right. And then, you know, of course, you know, those automatic processes do depend on labeled data. So at some point, somebody had to label all of these cells, make decisions about these types of cells and what these cells sort of look like and how the shapes of them were so that the machine could learn from that and then make decisions on these novel uh, novel voxels. But then, you know, a lot of these, they needed to, there's a lot of uh, proofreading that needed to be done. So both computers and humans had to go back in and check and double check and triple check to make sure that this these segments and these uh, labels these identifications. You know what the names we were giving to the cells uh, were the correct names. So there was a lot of manual work involved in that. So you know, twenty five thousand cells, each of which needs to be segmented and labeled correctly. So yeah. a lot of a lot of double triple checking by humans as well. So I think it probably. I, I don't think they said in here how many hours it took, but it, it 
must have taken good lord a lot hundreds of years of uh of human effort if you think about in total um yeah and so for those of you who are interested in seeing some of the results of this uh so there is a publicly available database that you can look through now the you can imagine that the amount of information that something like this generates is huge so I think uh, this generates something like 20 terabytes of of data, just 20 terabytes describing what's going on in that fruit fly brain. And um, yeah, just a to give a sense of that, they, they, they gave a nice uh, little little detail in the paper, which was if you have like a gigabit fiber connection, so a gigabit per second of data being transferred, it still takes a couple of days to download this this database. So a not insubstantial amount of data here, uh, and if you go on the if you go on the website that contains their uh, that contains the data visualization, and we'll put that on the show notes, uh, you can see uh, some some really amazing stuff. So number one, uh, so there's a whole bunch of different cells that they're they're identifying here. So they have to figure out the morphology of each different kind of cell in the fruit fly brain, which is um, quite a few. I don't know how many how many different cells are there in the fruit fly brain. A whole bunch. I don't there. know. I mean, I, I think they uh, I, they didn't uh, they said how many they were, you know, how many classifications they had in there, and they also mentioned that you know there's disagreement about that because you have lumpers, you know, and and splitters. So some people like to have some sorts of ambiguity where it's a little. It's a little tough to tell, especially at that small scale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, and some people prefer to, uh, you know, say that two cells that look similar are the same cell type, and other pr prefer to say they're actually different cell types. Now, the cool thing about the database is you can actually go in there and you can select any brain location that they've mapped out. So, clusters of cells that may connect to other clusters of cells, and you can see exactly what the strength of the connections between those areas is. And you can also see connections between every individual cell and where it connects to. So it really gives a lot of amazing detail on this. So just combing through it is actually kind of fun to do. Yeah, and, and it's totally open source. So if you want to go in, if you're you know, so inclined to that type of person and you have those skills, you can go in and do your own analysis on either the images or any of the resultant data that they've that they've. Uh, you know, tabulated and uh, lots of, and that's really the goal of this, like, you know, or one of the goals is to, you know, create this data set that you can, mm -hmm. that other researchers can then go to use to uh, you know, do analyses and, uh, you know, generate hypotheses or test hypotheses. All right. So, I mean, that's the, that's sort of the basics of, um, of, you know, what they're doing in, in um, this paper, so maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, some of the limitations of of the connectome and connectomics, and then and then of course some of the potential and some of the cool stuff that you can do with it. So uh, first of all, what what do we what does this tell us? So what are we learning from having if you know if we could have an entire connectome of the human brain, would we know everything about the brain? Is that all there is? Uh, no, of course not. I mean, you know, there's uh, a lot 
there's a, a whole lot that just the funk, you know, the morphological connection connectivity doesn't tell you, you know, all you need to know about the physiological connectivity. So, you know, it doesn't give you anything about time. There's like this, you mm-hmm. know, all the dynamics and it doesn't give you anything about what's going on in the cell. Most of the interesting stuff is going on inside each cell. Uh, you know, how they respond to the intracellular environment, you know, how they respond to neurotransmitters, which is the, you know, the, uh, the molecules that, that communicate between uh, different neurons. All that mm-hmm. stuff is not given to you at all by the connectome. So you don't get any of that information by the connectome. It does, they have tried to map, you know, the types of uh, synapses that are there. So like what, uh, you know, the, and the type of synapse will tell you a lot about what neurotransmitters are being exchanged between different cells. So you but, can get an idea of dopamine pathways and acetylcholine pathways and things like that. Right. So uh-huh. it does give you a lot of information if you have a model, but it requires other models. If you want to, if you really want to create, uh, a, you know, a model that gives you some information about how information is processed, it requires other information. It doesn't other details, other data that, that is not just the connectome. You need something about how those neurons are actually interacting. So in other words, this is not yet, we're not yet at the point where if we know someone's full connectome, or you know, even if we get to that point, it's not going to act as a full model of the brain that we can just, um, so that we could simulate exactly what the brain's doing and maybe guess at what behavior, what someone's behavior is. Um, right. It's a little bit like the genome, right, too, if you think about it. Because like just knowing what all the genes are is awesome. But if you don't know what the genes do or how they work or like, you know, how they interact physiologically, then you don't know very much at all. But because we already know a ton about what genes do, uh, knowing what all the genes are is very helpful. And similarly with the connectome, it's like just knowing the connectome by itself wouldn't be that helpful. But we actually know a lot about you know, the physiology of how neurons work and interact. So knowing how they're connected can be linked to other models and other, you know, hypotheses. And one of the things I think that some of the, some of the big promise for this, or at least some of the, the, the suggested promise for the connectome is that you can, you can help use it to identify neurological diseases. So maybe there's a signature connectome or a signature pattern in connectomes that describe, say, Alzheimer's or uh, Parkinson's or or other neurological diseases so we can get a much better grasp on how they work and what's going wrong. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things, talk about limitations, I mean, we're still very far from a human connectome uh, in the sense of like the orders of magnitude uh, between the fruit fly and the human are are really enormous. I mean, you're talking about going from terabytes of data to petabytes of data, thousands of times more data. Uh, and you're already you know, really struggling to even process the information in the fruit fly, which they have done, which is great. I mean, it's amazing if you think about it, they've actually, you know, in their view, pretty much mapped this entire hemibrain, this half a brain. As far as they could, you know, they feel complete in terms of their mapping of these. They know they probably missed some cells here and there, but they feel like they pretty much got most of it. And uh, that's that's awesome, but it's like way, just way fewer, just number of cells than right. Imagine how many um, fruit fly brains could fit in your head. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, and, and the other thing about the fruit fly brain is, it, you know, fruit flies do have different brains than humans. Like, even the neurons, how they work are different. They just, like, have, there's just structurally different kinds of neurons than we have. So it's interesting. In a, they, they synapse in a, in a different way, too. So there's structurally some, some regularities that are different between brains in that sense. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, there's some things uh, about the way that neurons work that are highly preserved, uh, you know, across the animal kingdom, but evolutionarily, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are very different and mm-hmm. flies are very, very different than, than humans. Um, now, one of the cool things that I'm thinking about possibilities here is I know that um, there are some people that are working on relating a connectome to behavior. So, like I said, with C. elegans, that worm that has its complete connectome mapped. So this is probably the best understood organism there is because, you know, yeah. it, it's this model animal that we just know everything about. So even with those 302 neurons, and then in addition to 95 muscle cells that this creature has, it's still not possible to understand how behavior results or the relation between neurons firing and the resulting behavior that's not mapped out yet and there are people who are working on this um it i don't think we're close to it yet but there's a company or there's a a project um, called cybernetic that um is attempting to model it's really a biological model so it models how membranes and um and matter and the environment interact and the idea is you can model these neurons more thoroughly, like you say, because there's a lot going on in the neuron and then how it interacts with the rest of the body and, and uh, muscle cells to to get a more complete understanding. And of course, this is the kind of thing that we would love to have for humans. I mean, this is what psychology is all about, figuring out exactly what's going on in the brain and then relating it in a really precise manner to the resulting behavior. But if you can't do it in 302 neurons right now, and that's I mean, that's a huge substantial problem. Then it's hard to see how that's going to happen with something just hugely more complicated than a C. elegans brain, uh, brain. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of work to be done there. But maybe we could talk a bit about what, you know, it would be like to have, you know, these models or what the purpose of these big models would be if you could get everything mapped, right? I mean, I guess the, I mean, that's the goal, right? Would be to have a model of a brain initially with like a small animal and then you know as you get bigger and bigger towards humans you know a model that basically represents the operation of of a brain in response to stimuli and and making decisions and and so on and so forth so that you could really see you know and test how different changes to the model would affect you know responses and behavior to better understand how our brains work. I mean, that's really, to me, at least as a psychologist, that's sort of the goal. I agree. And I remember thinking about this years ago that I would love to be at the point where conferences in psychology are about testing <laughs> testing one single model organism. So a brain with a connectome fully mapped out that you can, um, you can use as a test model and convey this to other researchers. I think it would be, it would be huge for understanding everything about the brain and behavior. I mean, this would be a great, this would be amazing. This is what psychologists and neuroscientists dream of for a research model. So absolutely, that would be 
I mean, that would be a huge possibility. What else do you see? I mean, even sort of science fiction level, what else? Well, I guess what it kind of think? gets into that whole thing about like, you know, if you had a model of a brain that was, I mean, so good, the artificial intelligence of the model was so good that it mapped every aspect of the way that a human brain worked. Mm-hmm. What would be the implications? So we got all of those details, all the neurotransmitters, everything solved. So if we could figure out for C. elegans and then we move up and solve it for humans too. Right. And that that's all in, instead of being in wetware, it's all in hardware. It's all in, you know, in a computer. And, uh, you know, what would be the implications of that model? Like what would be, is that model, if you like turn that model on and gave it stimulus and have it make decisions, you know, is it possible that that model could have consciousness, for example? Well, this is where our half hour episode, I don't think can quite cover that. You got a that. few minutes. Got a few <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I agree. I think that's the, I think that's the most interesting thing to think about is that I, you know, a future in which you can create a full model of your self or your brain and it can be fully simulated on a computer. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the singularity, right? At that point, if you could, if you could download your brain, I mean, but that's a little bit different downloading because like there's a little, there's some additional complexity. Well, to... you have to be comfortable with, with uh, having your brain sliced up too. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, there's that issue. There's, that's a topic. But I, I was can't thinking... see any way that, that scanning would ever make it possible to get that level of detail. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think there's like a, there's like an additional level, well, probably orders of magnitude more complexity of getting a model that is faithfully representing your brain at this moment versus like faithfully representing a brain that is, operates like a human brain. In other words, like if you think about like, if you wired up a brain, like just, you know, they had the, say had a connectome that was like a human like taken from an individual and had all the characteristics of physiology that a brain would have uh, the way that we're developing these things it wouldn't probably be the case that it would be like that person's physiology right it would be just generic physiology that that brain would be essentially starting but it's interesting it wouldn't be starting from nothing at all because right. if you think about it, the connectome itself or the connections themselves and particularly the synaptic connections and the weights of those, the sizes of those, is a, a function of history and your learning and memory. So uh, all your developmental history, right? So I was at first I was thinking, well, you'd just really be having like this naive brain, but no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have a, a naive brain. You by just by the choice of the the instance of the model, it has it has a history. It's not arbitrary. Yeah, and so it may be more likely that. Um, it's easier to develop something than it is to uh, copy it fully developed. It may be easier to, I guess, grow it. It may be easier <laughs> to model the process of development than it would be to to take a full snapshot of your brain as it is now. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and then, you know, in terms of just, you know, the implications for artificial intelligence in general, you know, the more, you know, as we've said a couple of times before on the show, like there was a moment in history when it felt like 
we weren't learning that much from the brain about how to build machine learning and artificial intelligence. And more recently, we've, you know, as computational power has increased and some new math has been introduced that actually, you know, the basic idea of having layers of interconnected units um, that are, you know, either just feed forward or recursive uh, is actually like a pretty decent framework for for building learning systems in in computers. And uh, as we learn more about how the brains actually connect up and actually put some of that understanding into into computer code, the, the implications for machine learning are are really, I think, quite profound. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think you're right to think of this as a two way process that machine learning can inform um, can inform connectomics and and vice versa too. The more we learn about the brain, the more we learn about um, how well it's designed and and you know why it's designed in the way that it is. Yeah, I mean that's actually as you say that now, I'm thinking really if you think about how much machine learning was uh, and machine vision was used to develop the connectome for um, the fruit fly and the fact that we're learning from the connectomics and you know the brain how to build better machine learning you can start to see how the robots eventually take over right because this yep there's a pretty clear path (laughs) machine starts to learn about itself and you know from from the loop yeah right analysis of, of the brain and the human and other animals and uh yeah, pretty soon it starts to starts to take off. Yeah, I think I, I don't even think we need to comment about what could go wrong here. I think <laughs> we'll leave that up to the imagination of the listener. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think that's probably a pretty good place to stop. What do you think? Great. Yeah, I think um, hopefully uh, everyone got a little information about the Connectome project and understands how exciting it is, and uh, we'll keep tabs on it for the future. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening. If you have comments, we'd love to get your feedback. I mean, the the the, the shorter form uh, episode was you know something we we developed from user feedback, from listener feedback, and uh, we'd love to hear more. So you can contact us uh, on Twitter at at NationCog. You could also contact uh, Raul for me directly on Twitter. Uh, I'm JL Hardy PhD, and I'm R O F L Nelson add us or, or, you know, DM us at, at, on Twitter and, and let us know what you think and any feedback, anything you'd like to hear about. If you'd like to be on the show, uh, any of these things, let us know and uh, we'll get back to you. Thanks for listening.